Good evening. It's good to be here with you this evening. I have lots of good memories here at Weavertown, mostly with singing groups and mostly with my back to the audience. But uh, this tonight, I have, I'm facing you. I <laughs> can see your facial expressions. The title of my topic this evening is The Gospel and Three Challenges to It. So I actually have three challenges that I want to talk about. The one I'll be pretty brief about. Uh, but I was invited because of my work uh, as part of the Sword and Trumpet Board. I serve with John on the Sword and Trumpet Board, which we publish a monthly magazine. And the purpose of the magazine is to emphasize neglected truth and oppose doctrinal error. And, of course, we get into some controversial issues with that, and hopefully we are taking the right position on those issues. And I understand you get the the sword and trumpet here, and I would invite your feedback, either to me or to John, as, as you read articles. But I would uh, encourage us this evening to be students of God's Word. With the advent of the internet, there's many different teachings out there, and the Bible calls us to not be carried away by every wind of doctrine, and, but to be grounded and settled in fact, there's that, that verse is from Ephesians, but in our Sunday school lesson this morning from Hebrews 13, there's a verse in there that says, be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. So how are we going to avoid that? Well, I think it more than ever, because of the rise of the internet and all this flood of ideas coming into our homes, we need to be grounded in God's word. We need to be like Jesus Christ, who, what was he doing at age 12? That's the only childhood story we, we know from Jesus' childhood. Uh, he was with the teachers of the law, asking them questions and answering their questions. Uh, instead of what? I, I, thought, I thought of this idea. Instead of being with his cousins and his friends, he was with the doctors of the law. I think that's something we can learn from Jesus Christ. But you might say, oh, that's the Son of God. Of course that's what he was doing. But aren't we to be like Jesus as, 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 a, as he lived out the human life here on earth? He's an example for us. How seriously do you follow Jesus' example as being a student of the word? The outline for my message this morning is going to be, or this evening, is going to be John 3.16. You may turn to that unless you have it memorized. You can still turn to it even if you do have it memorized. But let's quote that together to start. And I'm just going to begin by going through this verse as I think it is the most concise expression of the gospel, what I would call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's say it all together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the gospel is good news. And why do we need good news? Because, as Romans says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not only that, but we, we have the sinful nature and we cannot stop sin sinning, the Bible teaches. Without God's grace, we are under the dominion of sin and we cannot stop sinning. Thus, unless God acts on our behalf, we stand guilty of sin and we are under the domination of sin. But thankfully, God has acted on our behalf as this verse shows. And that's what the good news is all about. So it starts with the words, God so loved. And the word so isn't a real descriptive word, but perhaps used when no better adjective can be found, but it does refer us to the action that that is displayed by God's love. He so loved the world that. And so the only way to describe God's love is to refer to the action that his love moved him to. And that action was he gave his only begotten son. Now to give up any child must be hard. And I probably in a crowd this size, some of you have lost children. To give up an only child, I think, would be even harder. And my wife and I, we have one child, a three-year-old daughter, and so I can imagine maybe just a little more 
than those who do not have one child, the sacrifice God made to give up his only begotten son. Why did he do this? He, because of his love, and he did it for the world, most of whom would not, who do not even appreciate or accept his offer of salvation that giving up sacrificing his son made possible. Instead, they rebelled against him. What, now, who is included in that word world? Who is meant by that? And I like this little illustration. A businessman distributed some mirrors, gave these mirrors out. On the back of each mirror was printed John 3.16. And under the verse were these words, if you want to see who it is that God loves and for whom he gave his son, look on the other side. And so, of course, you turn the mirror over and see yourself. If you, uh, anybody that can appear in a mirror is whom, who God loved. He loved the whole world. Now, what is man's part? So God did this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him. Now, this is man's part. We, we must believe in order to accept God's offer of salvation. What does it mean to believe? Or what must we believe? Well, we must believe that Jesus, and I would get this from other scriptures, that Jesus is the Son of God, and because of that, he has provided a way of salvation through dying on the cross and rising again. Now, believing, and I'll get into this more a little, this, is, this word here is the crux of a lot of what I'll be sharing. What does it mean to believe, and what is man's part in attaining salvation. And I would put up front here, belief in this context is more than mental assent to certain facts. Nelson's Bible Dictionary says, believers are those who have trusted in God with their will as well as with their mind. So it's giving your will to what you're believing. Vine's Expository Dictionary says, to be persuaded of and hence to place confidence in, to trust it signifies in this sense of the word reliance upon, not mere credence. You're not just believing with your mind, but you're relying upon with your will. Faith is another word for believe used in the Bible, and I think we all know from James 2, 19 to 20, it says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. You're in good company. Actually, bad company. If that's all, that's, that's where it stops. Just a mental ascent. You're with the devil, and they believe. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? True saving belief in, in the scripture involves living out the implications of that faith. Do you really believe Jesus is the Son of God if you are not willing to surrender and follow him? You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you do not believe in him, in him enough to make him your Lord and Master. Moving on to the word perish, another crux of what I'll be sharing about. What does it mean to perish? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Look down, if you're in John 3 yet, to verse 36. I think we start to get an idea of what perish means. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. This verse 36, John 3, 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And that word abideth indicates an ongoing event as opposed to something that has an end to it. <clears throat> so perish, I think, from that means to be separated from God and have his wrath abiding on you. Revelations 20.15 would narrow it further, which says this, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life, in other words, whosoever has not believed and had their name written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. That shows us a little further that perish means everlasting torment in hell separated from God. 
And that has been the traditional view of what that word perish means. But as we'll go on, there's some challenges to that view. But, and then what, finally, what is everlasting life? That's the bad news that who do, whoever does not believe in him sh will perish. But those that do believe in him have everlasting life. Some may think that life in this world is not something they want to be everlasting. And that's true. None of us, I don't think, would want that. But as Harold Martin wrote in his commentary, everlasting life is a new quality of life. It's not just everlasting this life. God drove Adam and Eve from the garden and protected the tree of life with cherubims so that they would not live forever in this sinful world. And so the new birth, again, Harold Martin says this, the new birth delivers us from the power of sin. Everlasting life will deliver us from the presence of sin. And that's something we want. This, this is something, we sh of course, we should all want. Now, maybe you never thought of John 3.16 being controversial, and I think in large part it's not, but I want to just talk now three challenges, uh, debates that this verse, I think, is bring, brings up and that are being discussed in pretty close to our circles uh, this evening. And I don't know where your church is at on these issues, so I, if, I'm, if you feel like I'm throwing stones at you, I'm not. I'd... I, I'm just sharing what I feel the Bible teaches on these issues. So the first point I would like, going back to the word believeth, and I already hinted at that it's more than a mental ascent, okay? And so I think the one ditch here with this word is the easy believism. That's a word Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined, where you can just say a few words, say a prayer, it's done, tickets bought, you're on your way to heaven, doesn't matter how you live or die. That's called easy believism. But as I quoted already, James 2 makes clear that faith without works to back it up is dead. And Matthew 7, 21, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord. It has to be more than just saying Jesus is your Lord. That's not enough. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but who? He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And so a false profession and a dead faith are worth absolutely nothing as far as attaining everlasting life. Harold Martin in his commentary, the only faith, he says this, the only faith which is a valid faith is the faith that obeys. People who obey God give evidence in their hearts that they believe God. Menno Simons, probably his most famous quote, there's been a song written on, based on these words, true evangelical faith is of such a nature it cannot lie dormant, but spreads itself out in all kinds of righteousness and fruits of love. So that's one side of the road. Easy believism, where Faith, it's just mental assent or saying a, a profession about Jesus Christ. On the other side, this is the second ditch, is are those that would want to add something to believe, uh, to faith, to put faith plus works and make that the gospel message. <clears throat> and the, the um, area I'm going to talk about is the... Uh, teaching on baptismal regeneration. And this is a teaching which has gained some prominence through the followers of Way Church, which is closely connected with Sattler College in Boston, Massachusetts. <clears throat> and they would teach, and we uh, published a uh, dialogue that we uh, wrote back and forth. Uh, I was part of that, me and uh, Julian Stoltz, who is Paul Emerson, part of the Sword and Trumpet. We wrote to them and they said, well, before you just uh, write about us, let us, may we present our side of the story. So we dialogue, they present their side. And, but they would believe this, that, and this is nothing new. This is a pretty old doctrine, but it's gaining pro prominence these days through Sattler College and, and Followers of the Way Church. 
that water baptism is a vehicle whereby God saves and regenerates believers and fills them with the Holy Spirit. They would say, though one may have true faith, they are not saved until they are baptized. And it's when in that act of baptism where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you are regenerated, made a new man. <clears throat> and they would have, and I don't want to misrepresent um, anybody here, and you can read their, their full dialogue in the Sword and Trumpet. It's actually on, posted online if you go to our website. But they base their teaching on about 10 passages in the Bible. Well, I don't have time to refer to all of them, but John 3, 5, right here, and if you're still in John 3, is one that they would refer to, where it says, Verily, verily, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So they would say right there, that point being born of water must be water baptism. And first of all, I would say it's not clear to me that that's talking about water baptism. I'm not sure. It's a pretty difficult verse to interpret. Uh, for one thing, Christian baptism had not been introduced yet. And furthermore, I think, I think the crux of our debate is that they tend to, I think, confuse the results of salvation with the means to salvation. Uh, we took the position that faith is the means to salvation and baptism and good works are the fruit or the result of that salvation rather than a means to it. And so I would say the same thing here. Even as being born again is a result of saving faith, so is being born of water. And so I would say being born again and being born of water are, are results of salvation. Your life is changed. You're renewed. You're born again. They're the results of coming into right relationship with Jesus Christ, but they're not a means to it. Similarly, Acts 2.38. This is in uh, Peter's sermon on, on the day of Pentecost. He preached a sermon, and then the people said to him, uh, what shall we do to be saved? They were pricked in their hearts, and he said to Peter, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so what Matthew Mylioni at Followers of the Way would say is there's two things that you must do with two results. Repent and be baptized results in remission of sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. So they, they, point, they connect those two. And I, th I think that's going a little too far, reading too much into the passage. What I, the way I would say, interpret this verse, and I think traditionally we've done this, is that Peter assumes faith. Their question is a question of faith. What shall we do to be saved? They already, they, they already believe what Peter has been saying is true. And so now they're saying, what, what's the next step here? And so Peter addresses the two things that they need to do to show their faith. Because they've been involved in crucifying Jesus Christ, many of them. And so he says, you need to repent of that. Repent of crucifying Jesus Christ and be baptized, which is identifying with Jesus Christ, telling the world that you now identify with him He is, and you believe he's the son of God. So I've to think of an analogy here. It's a little like if I went up to a homeless man lying around with beer cans all around him, and I said to him, you need to get right with God and stop drinking alcohol. Now, if I said that to him, would I be meaning that that's the way to be saved? Stop drinking alcohol is the way to salvation. And no, I would, I would be talking about the one thing that should be one of the first results of being saved. If that guy truly met Jesus Christ and got right with, with Jesus, he would give up his alcohol. That would be one of the first results. Similarly, baptism, identifying with the one they had crucified, would be one of the first results of coming, of believing in Jesus Christ. And so that, that's what Peter names to them. 
Another verse is Romans 6.3, which says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So there they would say that in order to be baptized into Jesus' death, you be baptized with water. And that might be a legitimate conclusion if we just kind of parachuted into that verse and took it out of context. But we must harmonize it with the rest of Romans and the rest of Scripture. And up to that point, baptism isn't mentioned, although uh, Paul's main topic is how to be saved. And he's labored to say that they are saved by faith apart from circumcision. Now, it would seem strange to me that he's now turning on, kind of contradicting himself and introducing a replacement for circumcision, a new ritual to affect Christ's work in their lives. And I'll just share a... I don't know if you think I'm trying to twist these verses to suit my theology, but I'm trying to make them fit the rest of Scripture. And I'm going to just share a list of verses now that say we're saved by faith. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15 and lastly, Hebrews 10.38, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And we could, there's, I didn't read nearly every verse that would say, indicate justification by faith. Now we would expect, or I would expect, that if baptism were a required a means to salvation, a vehicle to salvation, it would be listed in most, if not all, of these passages, or at least implied we would expect New Testament writers to be very careful to not be misunderstood on such an important topic as the means to salvation. But Paul mostly doesn't mention it in Romans. And then you come to Romans 6.2, he does mention it. How are we to interpret that? Well, I think Paul, let me just read it because you not turned to it. Romans 6.3 Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? I think Paul here is no longer describing the way of salvation, but rather the results. Because he's asked the question, those of you that know Romans 6, he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And now he, I think, is illustrating, using baptism as an illustration the kind of transformation we experience through the gospel. And so, baptism signifies death to self and identity with Jesus, but does not bring it about. That would be my, in a nutshell, uh, interpretation of Romans 6.3. Baptism signifies death to self and identi identity with Jesus Christ, but does not bring it about. And so, like I said, I believe a lot of the difference here is what we consider the means to salvation versus the results of salvation. And <clears throat> I gave this topic at Peckway and I had a Q&A and found when you do that, you see a couple holes where you might have not been clear. And so one area maybe I, I, I was trying to think about is um, what's the difference if, uh, if repentance is a result of salvation rather than a means, uh, doesn't that contradict the scripture? Um, I would put it this way. Here, I have two illustrations how I fit this together. So repentance and baptism I see as results of salvation, uh, of faith. Uh, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will repent. You will be baptized. Uh, first illustration is a car. So you drive a car, and when it's running properly, at least if it's a gas, gasoline engine car, exhaust comes out the back, right? 
And, but would you say that exhaust, the exhaust is the means to the car moving forward, that, that exhaust, that's what drives it forward, the exhaust coming out the back. No, but if the exhaust is not there, the car is not going to move forward. It's, it's a fruit, or it's a result of the gasoline engine, which is what propels the car forward. And the other illustration is a, a penny here. Sometimes we say, use the phrase, the other side of the coin, of the same, that's the other side of the same coin. What do we mean by that? Well, I'm not sure, but I was thinking about that. What do we mean by that? Well, if uh, you can't give one side of a coin without also giving the other side of the coin, right? I can't just give you, this is a penny, I can't just give you Lincoln's image and leave the memorial behind. I give you both sides of the coin. So here's where I'm going with that. <clears throat> uh, I think the penny as a whole is faith. This is, this is what we do to attain salvation. We believe. That's what John 3.16 says. He soever believeth in him shall not perish. That's what we give, the penny. But can we give the penny without Abraham Lincoln's image and without his memorial on the back side? No. In fact, if we scrubbed that off of here, we wouldn't have a penny anymore, right? We'd have just a uh, hunk of zinc with copper coating, I think is what they're made out of. Okay? Wouldn't be truly a penny without that, that Lincoln and his memorial on the backside. On the other hand, if I took, got on my computer and printed out an image of Abraham Lincoln and took it to the store and said, hey, I want to buy, not that you can buy anything for one penny these days, but... Uh, I want to buy something here. Here I have Lincoln's image. Uh, his image is on the penny, so this should count, right? No. The clerk would say, foolishness. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't count. You need to give me a, a real penny. And that's, I think, an illust a good illustration of how it works, that true faith is like a penny that comes with Lincoln's image and his memorial. And if you don't have those with, but those things by themselves are not a means to purchasing anything. And similarly, if we say the back side of the penny is repentance and the other side of the penny is good works, those things by themselves are not a means to salvation. And so the penny is, the, is faith. That's what does the purchasing. Uh, and then repentance and good works. Among which is baptism. Baptism, I would call a good work that we should do. It's, it's an important work. And maybe sometimes we do not hold it as high as it ought to be held. Uh, but by itself, or even with faith, I would not say it, it's a means to salvation. So uh, what then is the significance of baptism? Now, they, in the discussion, they tried to uh, make the point that the early Anabaptists believed in baptismal regeneration, and I believe some did. It seems to me from my reading that Conrad Grebel, men of Simons, were, were strong that it's a symbol, not a means to salvation. But uh, they quoted a lot from Pilgrim Marpeck, which he did seem to be more on that side of baptismal regeneration. However... By 1632, the Dutch Mennonites came out with the Dortrecht Confession of Faith, which is still used by some groups today, which said this, the baptismal regeneration people lost the argument. It simply says, concerning baptism, we confess that penitent believers who through faith, regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost are made one with God and are written in heaven must, upon such scriptural confessions of faith and renewing of life, be baptized with water in the most worthy name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, according to the commandment of Christ and the teaching, example, and practice of the apostles, and thus be incorporated into the communion of the saints. And so I have two points that I would bring out. It says it's for those who are already regenerated and filled with the Spirit. They're, they've already been regenerated and filled with the Spirit. And secondly, it's for the initiation into the communion of the saints. 
1963 Confession of Faith, which is the one my church would use, which is we're part of Keystone Mennonite Fellowship, says, we regard water baptism as an ordinance of Christ, which symbolizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit, divine cleansing from sin and its guilt, identification with Christ in his death and resurrection, and the commitment to follow him in a life of faith and discipleship. So both of those would indicate that baptism is a sign, it's an initiation, it does not cause God's it does not cause regeneration or, or salvation. And now maybe you're saying, well, what's the big deal? I mean, some people think something happens when you go in the water, other people don't. My f- three concerns are this. <clears throat> Number one is that it adds a work, it adds work as a means to salvation when the Bible says that salvation is by faith and not by works. And I wrote this in the article. Uh, While the Catholics believe and teach salvation by faith plus works, Protestants teach salvation by faith without works. The Anabaptists teach salvation by faith that works. And I think think that's the correct position. Anabaptists teach salvation by faith that works. Secondly, so first of all, it adds a work, works as a means to salvation. Secondly, it places confidence in an outward ordinance to solve a spiritual problem when what is needed is genuine faith resulting in full surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay, so if you believe that baptism regenerates you, well, then you might put your faith in that. That's the way I'm going to get regenerated and become more spiritual. In fact, I know I heard secondhand from a, a friend of mine who has a friend at Sattler College who, was, who decided to be baptized. She was having some spiritual struggles and she thought being rebaptized would be help her with her spiritual struggles. And she was warned not to expect too much Nevertheless, she did expect too much and was disappointed when her spiritual struggles were not alleviated by rebaptism. And it would be convenient if we could perform some rituals and not have to every day crucify the flesh and somehow become more sanctified by uh, doing some kind of ritual, whether it be in uh, being baptized or if. Um, Maybe a few weeks after you take communion, if you'd have this extra grace and no struggle with sin after that for a few weeks. That would, be, um, that would be very convenient, but that's not what the scripture teaches about these ordinances. They are signs. They do not convey grace. There is a blessing. I think the Bible does say there's a blessing in taking of the cup. But they do not convey grace regeneration or salvation and thirdly my other my third concern is it makes salvation dependent on another person since you can't baptize yourself and so those in closed countries who come to believe through the internet or through visions and dreams which are happening quite a lot i hear reports uh, from muslim countries they come to faith and have nobody to baptize them what are they going to do to be saved and to be fair to, to uh, the Sattler College view, they would make exceptions. They would say the baptism of desire is recognized by God in some instances. And so I would say that seems inconsistent, but uh, that they do make allowance for that. So that's my, I'll stop there briefly for any questions you might have uh, regarding either easy believism or baptismal regeneration. Can't promise I'll be able to answer them all, but open up, open up the floor, and maybe somebody else could. Yeah. Yeah, so I would call it, 
and my friend Jerry Fox calls it a ch uh, egg or chicken issue, which comes first. So on one hand, they say that in order to be baptized, you have to show that you believe. But on the other hand, they say you're not regenerated until you are baptized. So how are you supposed to show your faith if you've not yet been regenerated? And is that... So I think there's a, yeah, they have a real issue there with which comes first, the chick, chicken or the egg, the, the regeneration or, or the baptism. And they would say, well, regeneration happens during baptism, but then we come back and say, well, then how is a person to show that they truly have faith? Because they would say you only baptize someone with faith. Yeah, so it's a little... And we asked them that in the discussion, and they said, well, it's a little bit of a mystery how the Holy Spirit works before salvation. And um, I did think the answer was totally satisfactory. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Um, Church of God in Christ would be a Protestant group that would embrace that. Yeah. So yeah, there are a number of other groups. In fact, they pointed us to a book. I don't have the name off uh, the top of my head, but uh, I think Finney Curavella there at Sattler College said we should read this book. And it was by, I think, by a Church, Church of God in Christ author. So yeah, it's not a new teaching. In fact, they would say it's, this is what the early church taught. I don't know how early, and I don't think they know for sure either. But yeah, it, and it, the Roman, it is somewhat close to the Roman Catholic position, which they would say baptism forgives original sin, which we would say, well, you're not even guilty of original sin. You're only guilty of sins you commit. But the the Catholics would teach you're guilty of original sin and therefore you must be baptized in order to be saved because that takes care of that original sin. Um, yes? So is the um, idea that baptism is necessary for salvation, is that responsible for more people leaning toward uh, infant I haven't heard that we're going toward that. Are you saying that that is something you've heard? It is. Yeah, yeah, it could. Uh, although uh, followers of the way would be very clear that it must be for baptism to be effectual, it must be accompanied by faith. So they would say you have to have a faith alongside of it, but it's faith, more of a faith plus baptism that saves. They would say faith plus baptism plus repentance are the means to salvation. You have to have all three of them. And then, whereas I would say faith is the means, baptism, good works, uh, repentance are the results of believing in Jesus as the Lord. But yeah, it would, could very well lead to that, to infant baptism. Yeah. So you believe that the, the scripture, especially the historical genres where the Bible tells you history, can either either prescriptive or descriptive nature. And I think they take a lot of what what is descriptive and make it prescriptive. Can you can you tell us more about that? They're taking they're telling us of something that the Bible is either telling us what happened or telling us what to do. And I think they mm. explain the you're talking more about the Acts passages, yeah. So they would lean heavily on a couple Acts passages, which I already read the one in Acts 2, which um, another one they would lean on is, is Paul's third. Paul gives his testimony three times in the book of Acts. Well, two times. The story of his conversion is, is given, and then two times he tells it to on trial, while he's on trial. And the third time he gives his story, he's puts the words of Ananias that came to him when he was 
was blind and said, Rise up, Paul, and be baptized, washing away your sins. I don't know if I have that quote exactly right, but it kind of infers that the the baptism would be the thing that washes away your sins. And uh, it only, if you read the other accounts of that, it's it's not quite that way. I I think there's other interpretations of that. But uh, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, in the book of Acts, you have to, the big discussion in the book of Acts is, uh, is this a historical account or is this normative for how the church should be? For example, speaking in tongues, is that something we should always be doing when we become saved? The Pentecostals would say, you know, that's prescriptive. We'd say, no, the Bible's just describing what happened in the early church. Uh, I think you could talk a little more about that than than me, so. And I might get into that a little more with with the next topic, but but yeah, I would just say, when you're reading the book of Acts, for example, when the Pharisee Gamaliel says that if it's not of God, it will just, it will die out. Is that is that biblical truth? Was Gamaliel speaking the truth? And I would say, not quite. I mean, there's lots of things that have lasted that are not of God. And he used that when describing the, the early apostles. He said, if, if it's of God, you can't fight against it. If it's not of God, it's going to die out. Uh, but there again, I think that would be an example of it's describing a historical event. Gamaliel's words, not necessarily, I don't think, uh, doctrinal truth. Not that Acts does not contain good uh, doctrinal truth, and there are many things in Acts that should be taken as normative for the church, normal normal behavior. My uh, next concern, and my third and last here, or third challenge to the gospel, has to do with the word perish. And I've already mentioned, what does the word perish mean? And I've indicated, I believe, and this has been the traditional view of the church, that perish means eternal torment in hell. Uh, But there's a new doctrine, not new, it's new for us, I think, for our settings, and I hadn't heard about it until about two years ago, at least not in depth. But uh, it's called, there's two names for it, annihilationism, or conditional immortality. And they basically mean the same thing, although there might be some differences. But annihilationism would teach that, and to be clear, they do not, those that take this view, do not deny hell, but they deny that you would be in hell for eternity. You would be, you might be in hell for a little bit, and then annihilated, done away with. Your soul would cease to exist. And that brings me to the other word for it, conditional immortality. Immortality, immortal means you live forever. They would teach that humans are not created as immortal beings. It's conditional on coming to Jesus Christ. Those that do not accept Jesus Christ are not immortal. They will, uh, they will cease to exist. They will be annihilated uh, at some point after death. So they would say, humans are not created with an immortal soul, rather they are given immortality upon the condition of believing. Those who do not believe simply cease to exist. Now this shapes the gospel message. Rather than the gospel being a choice between everlasting life and everlasting judgment in hell, the gospel is simply an offer of everlasting life. Uh, And the verses they would use to support their, their view are the way they would interpret this word perish in in, uh, John 3.16. They would understand it to mean ceasing to exist. Or Matthew 10.28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. They would say the word destroy means annihilated. They would rely a lot on Old Testament passages such as Psalm 37.10, which says, yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. 
And they would say, see, right there, you shall be no more. But if you look at the context there, he's talking about the wicked in the land of Israel and people, the wicked being cut off out of the land of Israel, not necessarily cut off from their soul being existing in the universe. Now, as I already mentioned, conditional immortality does allow that sinners may suffer for a time in hell, such as that depicted in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, but once their sin is appeased, they are annihilated. And they would say, everlasting punishment, you say, well, that... The Bible's clear on that, but they, you have to understand the nuance of their position a little bit. When the Bible refers to everlasting punishment, we would say it refers to burning in hell. They would say, no, it simply means annihilation. That's the punishment, being ceasing to exist. And what are the verses to, against it? And I think this one's even easier to rebut than baptism of regeneration. There are quite a few that you really have to I think, force to make it agree with their position. First of all, the rich man and Lazarus. We have in that passage, the fire being of such a nature, it does not consume the rich man. In fact, he's there in the fire asking for just a drop of water would, would help ease his pain. And at what point, so the question comes up to me, at what point would the fire consume if it doesn't do it right away? And there you have, there's no scripture that would say that. Uh, And so you have to kind of infer it. There's no such trigger mentioned in scripture. Some other passages, there's four times in Matthew where Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, an ongoing action that's occurring in uh, the place of torment. In the same way as I quoted uh, John 3.32 or 3.36, the wrath of God abideth on them. It's ongoing. Uh, Matthew 25.46 says, this is at the end of uh, Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, And he says at the end of that, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, the goats on his left hand, but the righteous into life eternal. I would point out in this passage that the length of punishment is equal to the length of the reward for eternal life. So if eternal life is eternal, then everlasting punishment must also be the same length, right? Well, I've already told you what their response to that is, that well, annihilation is the punishment, and that's forever. But to that I would say this. Uh, First of all, is annihilation really punishment? Can you correctly call that punishment if you're not even um, knowing what's going on? You're not existing. So how can that be really be called, fairly be called punishment? And secondly, why the word everlasting? It's totally unnecessary if you're annihilated. If you're annihilated, of course it's everlasting. The only way you're coming back is a miracle of God, which he can, I guess, create again, but the word is mostly unnecessary if you're annihilated. And so that verse is really, to me, seems really strained to say, instead of, and these shall go into everlasting punishment, is it really saying the same thing, and these shall be annihilated? And I would say that's a stretch. The most, the hardest passage, I think, for them is Revelation 14.10, where it says, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. And so uh, their response there is, that, uh, well, it's the smoke of their torment that's going up forever. It's this, they no longer exist, but the smoke is still going up. And that, to me, also seems a bit strained uh, because it says it's their torment, that they're they're still being tormented. Um, And they have no rest day nor night. 
The main point I would say about the, that position is many things can be made to fit scripture. You can make almost anything fit, and you've seen it done, I'm sure, uh, from evolution to gay marriage. You can make, bend the passages to make anything fit. But what does the Bible actually assert is, I think, the question needs to be asked. We do not have a single line in the Bible that says sinners will be thrown into eternal hell wherein their souls will cease to exist after some time. There's no passage that says that. We do have scriptures which assert the eternality of judgment in hell. And I think that's what we have to go with. Now, does it matter? Now, when I first heard about this, like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. I mean... Whether, who wants to be in hell one day? Is it really that much worse to be there eternally? Well, yeah, I think, thinking about it further, yes. It's much worse to be there for eternity than for one day. And in fact, I had a friend who was talking to a, a friend who uh, had fallen away from God and knew it. Knew he wasn't doing right with, wasn't right with God. And he, my friend told him that about this debate that's happening in some churches... And he, his response was, well, I hope, it's, I hope it's not eternal. I hope we're annihilated because he, he knew he wasn't right with God. And so my first response here of why I think it matters is that it provides a measure of comfort for sinners that the Bible does not give. And secondly, so that would be my first, I think, it, why it matters. Secondly, we know our, how severe our rebellion is against God for two reasons. One is our view of hell, and another is what it took to save us. What did it take to save us? God giving his only begotten son to die on the cross. Well, that should tell us about what he's saving us from. It must have been something terrible. And yes, one day in hell would be terrible, but eternity in hell is even worse. And so I think uh, it's once we start changing our view of hell, our view of sin and how awful it is starts to change. And then thirdly is a scriptural reason that if we start interpreting scripture in these ways where we're injecting ideas to make scripture more palatable, I think is, is why it's often done, rather than deducing them from Scripture. We inject ideas into Scripture rather than deducing ideas from Scripture. We're on shaky ground. And so I would call us to try to read the Bible for what it says and not bring, and it's impossible for anybody to do total. We all have our biases and, uh, that we bring to Scripture as we read it. But uh, try not to bend Scripture to fit your view, but rather bend your view to fit scripture. And I think we would all agree with that. Any questions on that one? I don't want to go too long here. But. Have we emphasized areas in our lives that have driven some of these people to go off on the beliefs like that? Like what's, what's making these people even want to believe something like that? I, that's, has it been our teaching? Is it the teaching that we've given them? My first response would be the internet. I think there's, there's about two or three videos on the internet, very, very uh, persuasive speakers. And you go on the internet and you can just pick up all this stuff and we, we don't ask enough questions. We're not sufficiently suspicious of what we read on the internet. And so I think the rise of the internet is causing it. Maybe some upbringing, I'm, I'm not sure what, no, I, I can't fully answer that. Do you, do you think some of our, um, not putting enough emphasis on sin and our wickedness in our own lives that we think we're good and sin's not so bad and these people can't fathom something like hell? I think it could go both ways. I already indicated that your view of hell can affect your view of sin, but yeah, probably the other way can work where your view of sin Yes, influences your view of hell. And so, yeah, your view of sin, I think, is grounded in what it took to save you. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross 
God's only begotten Son. And so that then should lead us to uh, consider what we're being saved from. I'll have to look that up. Revelations 20, 13, and 14. <clears throat> the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so, yeah, this is interpreted by them to mean that, to mean an, an annihilation. Is that what you're, you're getting at? That uh, since death and hell are done away with, then, um, or death and hell are thrown in the lake of fire, and everybody that was in. So, the way they get around the rich man Lazarus is that they would say that the rich man was in Hades, and at this point, Hades is cast into the lake of fire, and everybody in Hades is annihilated. I think is part, some people would take that view. And I don't think it's necessary to take that view. I mean, the lake of fire can be the same kind of fire as the Hades fire, is what I would say. And I think it's, that would be more, seem more likely that the fire that was burning the rich man is the same kind of fire that's the lake of fire, uh, one that does not annihilate. No, they, okay, they wouldn't teach that. No, yeah, they would. You would say, to be consistent, you would yeah, say, maybe. <laughs> no, they, well, yeah, that, no, they wouldn't say that the, they would, yeah, life is everlasting on the, for the righteous, but the, but the wicked are annihilated. And so that's where conditional immortality comes in, it's. Only if you are righteous that you get the eternal, eternal life. The ones I used. Yeah. Um, yes, I can. If you want to write them down, <clears throat> and there would be others, but um, there's four passages in Matthew where the weeping and gnashing of teeth is used which indicates an ongoing thing. Matthew 25, 46, I think would be one of the best, and Revelation 14, 10. But a lot of times when hell is talked about, it's often described as being eternal and everlasting. And that doesn't mean the things in it are necessarily eternal and everlasting, but I think the implication is that those in it will also be eternal and everlasting. Not that I know of, I think of of. The view, the name given to our view is eternal conscious torment which means that you are, doesn't mean it's, you're intellectually tormented, but it means you're aware of your torment, I think is what that's getting at. But I think, yeah, I wouldn't know of any word specifically says you're tormented intellectually, but it seems more of a physical description in the Bible. Yeah, I would, that would be true. So if you didn't hear that, uh, John is saying that the awareness of why you're there, well, think of the rich man, he 
he knew why he was there, and he even had some advice for his brothers for, for not coming there. Uh, so yeah, there would be, I'm sure, intellectual torment. Yeah, well, I, I think it's done more to, maybe to accommodate the world, like for for creation or evolution. Yeah, you, you see, oh, see all the scientific reasoning, and oh, we should accommodate that. And oh, if we do this to this verse, then we can make evolution fit. And to be honest, hell is a terrible subject, right? And that none of us like to think about it even one day in hell and eternity in hell where in this place that's created for the devil and his angels and think of going there and a devil coming up to you and what are you doing here? You're not made for this place and it's a terrible place and it just seems, I think it bothers some people to talk about it in that way but that's nevertheless, I think, the way scripture talks about it and they want to make it more palatable. Yeah, I think it's more socially driven that um, I think the ones that take this position would say they believe the Bible and want to stand on its authority, but at the same time they want to make it yeah, more palatable. Yes? What's that? Aaron's saying what we need is a study on the attributes of God. Um, yeah, that's one of the one of the things that one of the reasons given. Yes, how can a, for for annihilationism? Um, but yeah, God has God is also just, and that's why again coming back to Jesus' death. Why did he have to? Why did Jesus have to die? Why could God just forgive our sins? Well, it's because He is also a just God, and so Jesus had to die that God could be both just and the justifier of those that believe. And I, so I think that points us to how a loving God can. And did you say send people to hell? I think one way to say it is that. Does God send people to hell, or do they choose to go there? Is there not a special dimension to salvation to say that that which saves us from sin also saves us from hell? Yes. So why do we need, why do we make it controversial? And God has made it plain and rather straightforward. Aaron's... Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, interpretation of scripture is a watershed issue. And I think we do well. Anabaptists have said we need to interpret scripture according to what it meant to the original readers. And when Jesus says the wicked shall depart into eternal punishment, what would the original readers have understood? That's the question to be asked. How did they? And of course, some, there's debate about that too. But we don't we don't fit scripture to fit current cultural winds, but we try to identify the historical grammatical meaning of the text. Okay, uh, it's getting a little late, so let, let me close. I just want to share this. Yet yeah, coming back, I think to one thing I'm, I'm passionate about on this topic is what is saving faith. And I've said, true saving faith is to be persuaded so much that your actions will show what you believe. And as a closing illustration of this, on June 30th, 1859, crowds gathered to watch Charles Blondin cross over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 
And he stopped in the middle and lowered a thin rope down to the Maid of the Mist. And uh, somebody on the Maid of the Mist tied some wi a wine bottle to it and he pulled it back up and leisurely sat in the middle there on his tightrope drinking his bottle. And then he resumed crossing and ran the last 100 feet. He thought he would be careful, but nope, he ran the last 100 feet, putting on a good show. And the crowds oohed and odd. And he kept the tightrope up there for several weeks and crossed back and forth numbers of times, performing more tricks, hanging from both legs one time. Uh, one time he laid down on the cable, one time he walked backward. And one day with former president Millard Fillmore in attendance, he pushed a wheelbarrow across. And it's said that he asked his audience as he got to the other side, uh, do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? And of course the crowd shouted, yeah, yeah, you can do it. And then, of course, you might have heard this story. His next question was, who will get in the wheelbarrow? And of course, nobody did, and I don't blame them. <laughs> but true saving faith will be shown by your actions. Now, there's not a real good advantage getting in Blondin's wheelbarrow, but there is a good cause to get in Jesus Christ's wheelbarrow. And in fact, saving faith demands that we commit our lives to him. We trust him fully with our life. And true saving belief will move you to make Jesus Lord of your life. You cannot have Jesus as your savior if you do not make him your, if you do not believe in him enough to get in his wheelbarrow and make him your Lord. So get in his wheelbarrow. He is gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He sent his son to die as an atonement for our sins, that he could be both just and the justifier of those who believe. And so I call you to do that tonight. I don't mean to scare anybody by the terribleness of hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And I share these with all humility. I have friends who, particularly on the uh, conditional mortality issue, that are not quite as convinced as me. And I like to talk to them and I'll talk to people about this, but um, I think the Bible is clear on these issues, And but wherever you stand, give your, I think the most important thing I'd like to share tonight is commit your life, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, committing your life completely to him, surrendering in full assurance of faith.